Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're joined by Shaheen Vallée, who was an economics advisor to Macron when he was finance minister in France. And we're going to be talking about the state of the Macron presidency and the state of French politics. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And the LRB now has a beautiful new website to mark its 40th anniversary. Just go to lrb.co.uk and you will discover a treasure trove of articles from the last 40 years and all the latest writing, including Adam Schatz on the death of Soleimani. If you take out a subscription, you will get all this and so much more. The print magazine, the LRB app and unlimited access to that archive, all for just £1 an issue. To subscribe, visit lrb.me forward slash talk. Shane is currently a senior fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations. Helen Thompson is also here. She is, among many other things, economics advisor to this podcast. <laughs> We're going to try and cover a lot. French politics is completely fascinating at the moment, as seen from the outside. I don't know what it's like seen from the inside. We'll do a bit of background just to get us from, as it were, Macron's election to now. The thing that most people are aware of is the Gilets Jaunes movement. It didn't come out of nowhere, but it really jolted his presidency. But it's now morphed. And one of the questions is, has it morphed? Or are we talking about a different phenomenon into the widespread protests against Macron's pension reforms? How should we relate Gilets Jaunes and the pension protests? Are they if we did the sort of Venn diagram, do they overlap a lot? No, I think they're quite different in nature, actually. I think the the pension reform is a more traditional form of opposition to neoliberal reforms that France has experienced over the last 20 years. I think the Gilets jaunes protests stand out as something quite different because they came in as first an opposition to a simple fuel tax and ended up crystallizing a wide range of contestation and ended up gathering a number of people who normally don't express themselves politically. So I think the the people who you see on the streets for the pension reforms are actually not the same people that you saw on the rond-point for the Gilets jaunes. And I think what the Gilets jaunes protest crystallized was a much deeper opposition, not only to a single uh, reform, and in that case, not only to the fuel tax, but a much more profound rejection of the way the French political system operates. And I think there are a number of things that emerged as points of tension during these protests. One was the political organization. And I think in some sense, Macron pushed to the far end the limits of the Fifth Republic and the very presidential regime. I think uh, we have now a system that is probably the most centralized it has been ever, even probably under de Gaulle. I mean, under de Gaulle, there actually was a government that decided a number of things. I think now power is centralized, you know, in the hands of Macron and a few advisors. And and, and just to, we'll come on to the others, but is that partly because of the collapse of the main parties that En Marche also, after all, was very successful in the legislative elections and that some of the I don't know if you should say checks and balances about the French system, but it has also been centralized by the hollowing out of 
the traditional parties? Yeah, I think there are several explanations for why the French system has become so centralized. So one is the collapse of the parties and the fact that Macron has gotten as a result of that and as a result of the, as a result of the collapse, he has partly engineered an overwhelming majority. But also the fact that this majority is actually composed of people that have very limited power base and that are themselves all over that. To some extent, he has brought the parliament some 300-odd parliamentarians that have no political experience whatsoever, don't carry any, pol- any political weight, and therefore can be marginalized to a large extent. So we already have a presidential system, on top of which we have actually have a very weak cohort of parliamentarians. And so that magnifies the power of the presidency. And on top of that, you have Macron, who has decided to organize his government with you know, very powerful technocrats, most of them located at the Elysee, and therefore centralizing power not only in the hands of the executive, but in a subset of the executive, which is the presidency. We'll bring Helen in a second. One more question about the Gilets jaunes and the pension protests. Presumably, when Macron came in, he anticipated that some of the reforms that he wanted to undertake would encounter traditional resistance. And as you say, this anti-pension reform protest looks like part of a pattern. He presumably didn't anticipate the kind of gilet jaune systematic rejection. He certainly seemed more shocked by that. I don't know if this is true. He knew he would face resistance, but the scale of it seems to have taken him aback. Is that fair? That's fair. I think the scale, but also the nature of it. So I I think it was to be expected that Macron would face resistance such as the one we're seeing in the pension reform. But the nature of the gilet jaune protest was different in the sense that it was not so much contesting one particular piece of reform, but generally the way the system operates, so the centralization of power that I've described, but also the centralization of economic forces. You know, if you compare France to Germany, for instance, Germany because it's a federation, but also because it has a very widespread economic structure, actually has economic centers across the country. France essentially has three economic centers, Paris, Marseille, and Lyon, but the rest of the country is increasingly deserted. And you have actually movements of population and capital centralizing both economic and political power in few centers, and that's sort of disenfranchising a wide range of the country. And the people who came to the streets for the Gilets movement are people who feel that sort of uh, tension. Yeah, I mean, I think what's really striking about what's happened is is that you know, Macron's, if you like, claim to competence was supposed to be that he was going to get things like pension reform done. So that if you go back to the, the 90s and the way in which Chirac's government's and came apart over the reforms that were necessary in order for France to meet the Maastricht Convergence Treaty. Macron's kind of account was, well, look, the French didn't reform themselves sufficiently, and because they didn't reform themselves sufficiently, we haven't got what we want out of the Germans where the euro is concerned. So if we're going to have euro reform, we have to reform France. I'm the person, he's saying, who's going to be able to do that. I'm going to break this logjam that reflected previous French presidents, previous French prime ministers, and it was supposed to be that you show that you can be serious about getting the French budget deficit under control. And that means, as he saw it, that was the the, the key that opened the, the door to getting Germany to make concessions. Well, I think what's happened is, is that both of those things turned out to be incorrect. It wasn't the key, even if he had succeeded, which he hasn't, that was going to open the door for Germany on um, Euro reform. And at the same time, he hasn't actually done any better with the supposed reforms necessary in order to restore French competitiveness, etc., reduce the budget deficit than previous governments. Now, in part, and I think that what's interesting is, is what would have happened if he'd been trying to do this 
before, when I say this, I mean the pension reform, before the gilets jaunes, did they create the conditions in which it made it even more difficult for him to succeed with domestic reform? Or was it actually, which I think in, in a way is the interesting thing that Shaheen's just been suggested, is, is actually the way that he politically won power made it incredibly difficult. In fact, even harder actually than for previous French governments, French presidents and French prime ministers to achieve this reform. Yeah, I think Hélène is saying two important things. One is the relationship to Europe, and we'll come to that. And two is the way to, to govern and, and reform. I think there was a very profound mistake made by Macron and the team, which was to believe that you could, you know, ram through reform, you know, and that a young, energetic president with an overwhelming majority in the House could, could get all of this through. By doing that, he completely ignored the role that unions play, not necessarily in so far as negotiating with unions, but as a way of mediating with public opinion. And I think that's something that became very evident and, you know, that crystallized with, with the Gilets jaunes, but that's very clear also with the, with the pension reform. So I think this style of government, this method, has crystallized a lot of opposition and will make any reform actually more challenging than it would have been otherwise. So I think, you know, in the past, you had a reform that was put on the table, opposition by the trade unions, and then some kind of compromise, and this compromise helped to get this deal through society. And I think with Macron, this has been sort of fundamentally broken. Now, on the relationship with Europe, I I agree with you, and it's very interesting that, so when I joined Macron's team in the September of 2014, It was just a few weeks after Mario Draghi had made this very important speech at Jackson Hole, where he essentially presented that deal. You know, at the time, Draghi said, you know, Europe needs two thi four things. It needs structural reforms. It needs a large investment plan. It needs fiscal expansion. And it needs monetary expansion. And what Draghi said at Jackson Hole is, I'm going to take care of delivering monetary expansion. So that led to QE. But Europe needs to deliver an investment plan that was the Juncker plan, which we can discuss. And Macron at the time, and this was my mandate when I joined this team, said, you know, our job is to deliver as much as we can on the structural part, because that's part of a, of a European deal. And just to be clear, that was when he was finance minister in the Hollande government. He was economy minister in the, economic in, minister. In, in, in the Hollande government. And what emerged very quickly over the, the coming year was that this deal was not working, you know, that we were doing as best as we could on the economic reform front in France. The investment plan presented by Juncker, in our view, was minimal and largely designed with you know, you know, accounting tricks and leverage, but with very limited fiscal resources. And the only one who actually delivered is part of the deal was, was Draghi with QE at that point. So by the middle of 2015, Macron already knew that this logic of you know, France doing its homework, keeping its house in order, as the expression goes, in return for European favors had not worked and was not very likely to work. So it was surprising to me, and, and we had arguments about that during his, his campaign, that he continued to campaign on that basis and continued to somewhat believe in that matrix when he had seen firsthand that it was not working. There was no reason, if you look back at the positions that the Germans in particular, but not just the Germans, some of the other North European governments like the Dutch and indeed some of the Eastern European governments now have taken, to presume that they were going to shift their fundamental view of the way in which monetary union should work, their fundamental view of monetary matters, you might say, simply because, as they saw it, 
the French established some domestic reforms that, in their opinion, were long necessary anyway, and the France should have been doing for its own reason. Now, you can argue about the rights and the wrongs and the plausibility or not of that interpretation of the economic problems that afflicted um, the Eurozone, but that was their position. And as Sharon said, they demonstrated before Macron took office that there wasn't really going to be any movement on that. And indeed, as far as they were concerned, particularly the Germans, letting Draghi do QE was already a, a really big concession. So the idea that there was a, a trade-off that could be done whereby, if you like, Macron restored French credibility and then these other things fell into place from Europe and from the Germans in, in particular, it seemed to me, and I think we discussed it at the time when Macron was running, seemed a non-start. It would have required the German government to behave in a completely different way than it had done over monetary matters at a time when it was already having to make, a, as far as it was concerned, a really big compromise with Draghi. So Shane, when you see Macron in Munich last week, give another of these grand speeches. So now he's saying some of the th same things. We need these kinds of reforms at the European level. And now it's being dressed up to save the West or, I don't know, to save something very grand. The rhetoric has become more inflated. Does it look to you like it's getting further and further away from the realities of the situation? Because he's not given up on this. And again, non-Europeans tend to look at Europe and think that Macron is assuming a kind of leadership role of some kind and yet nothing's really changing. How do you see it? So, yeah, Macron appears to be and, and is the leader of Europe to some extent because he's energetic and has actually a vision that very few European leaders have, but also by default because The others Macron, are just dropping away. Because Merkel is coming to, to the end of her term and has lost a lot of her, her sway. I think going back to, to Macron's attempt in Europe... Uh, before stepping on to Munich and, and the rest of the world. I can see why, despite the failure under the Hollande presidency when he was economic minister, he would have tried again. I can see why he would have thought, okay, you know, I was not the president. There is something substantially different in me trying as an economic minister and in me trying as a president. So I, I appreciate that he wanted to try again. What's been surprising to me is that he didn't really have a theory of change for how to push change through Europe. Basically, the only theory of change that he had and that, in fact, the French establishment has is you do a Franco-German deal and then you ram this through the rest of Europe. And I think this was profoundly misunderstanding how Europe had evolved. So the increasing role and the veto power of small countries like the Netherlands, like the Anseatic League, and so that, you know, was underestimating their importance. And I think the second mistake was to believe in a very sort of French way that the only thing that matters is a deal between Macron and Merkel. And to me, the, the most evident sign of that was the Meseberg Declaration. So there was a Franco-German agreement between Macron and Merkel that was signed in June of 2018. So quite quickly, you know, a year into his presidency, which by and large, secured a number of concessions from Germany. And so it was viewed by Macron and his team as a, as a great success. And I have to say it was from a pure sort of diplomatic standpoint, you know, securing the acknowledgement on the need for a Eurozone budget, for instance, was a major concessions that the Germans made. What was formidable is that within 48 hours after this declaration, it had been shut down by the prime minister of the Netherlands and basically never made its way to the European Council conclusions and was therefore never accepted as a, as a European compromise. 
And I think that was, to me, the moment where if Macron had believed until then that, you know, his game of seduction with Merkel could lead to something, it was the moment to realize that this was not working and that something else was needed. And at the time, the, the view that I and a few other people had was that the only alternative theory of change was to build a pan-European transpartisan coalition in the run-up to the European elections in May 2019, and a coalition that may not include Merkel and her party, and a coalition that could have included the Spanish socialist, uh, Syriza in, in Greece, the civic platform in Poland, which was technically part of the of the EPP, the Greens in uh, in Germany, and so I think with a coalition like that arriving in the European Parliament with that sort of strength, he could have still kept a handle on on the European agenda and on European policy. But he decided not to do that. So he has not campaigned along this tr- transnational and transpartisan line. And in my view, ended up in the European Parliament in May 2019 with you know basically 20 two French MEPs in a weak centrist group that was not able to form a strong majority. And that's, you know, the sort of von der Leyen commission we have today with a weak mandate, a very slim majority, and in my view, largely an agenda that's to a large extent uh, dominated by, by Merkel. We'll come back to the decline of the West because we still I think we need to touch on that because there is a grandiosity as well to Macron's vision and it also connects to Russia and Putin. But when you talk about building that sort of alliance, I think most people still think of Macron as a centrist. He, he came in as a centrist. And yet, domestically, am I right in thinking, his support has quite dramatically shifted from left to right. And he, he is going to have to run next time as a candidate of the centre-right. How has that shifted his room for manoeuvre both domestically and and within Europe, because he's not quite as, I think, many people outside France still imagine him, this kind of person who, like Obama was once going to be, somehow stands above and between the parties. Yeah. No, he very successfully campaigned on this line. As above, a centrist above the fray. As above sort of political divides and as above political parties. And I think that was extremely successful. And he was very agile in presenting himself as having, in some aspects, very left-leaning tendencies, you know, insofar as immigration policies, for instance, you know, coming out of a French socialist government, which he criticized for not having been sufficiently open to immigration and, you know, praised Merkel for her role in the migration crisis in 2015. And on, on the other hand, you know, being sort of center-right more classical neoliberal type when it came to to economic policy. So I think he managed to straddle that very well during the campaign. But that did not last very long. First, he chose a right-wing prime minister, a center-right, but but right-wing prime minister, and then very quickly made choices in domestic policy that sent signals that he was no longer sort of, you know, neither left nor nor right-wing candidate, but like affirmed himself increasingly as a right-wing candidate. Started with, you know, something he had campaigned on, which was putting an end to the state of emergency law that was in place since the terrible terrorist attack of 2015. So France had been under state of emergency for, for more than two years by then. And in reality, he did put an end to the state of emergency, but by 
essentially creating a new law that brings all the provisions of the state of emergency into standard legislation. And then a year later, there was a, an asylum and migration law that also you know, stood in very stark contrast with the line he had taken during the, the campaign. So I think these two sort of moments were moments that contributed to shift the views that many people had on, on his policies and increasingly made him a right-wing figure. And then I think political tactics played a big role too. The reality was that in the French political system, he had very successfully destroyed the center. He had very successfully divided and conquered the left. There was no threat to be seen from the Socialist Party. Mélenchon was and is still weakened by both the loss in the election, but also you know, the disorganization of the, of the party. The Greens, although enjoying, you know, uh, moments of sympathy, you know, could not turn this into real electoral victory. So there was, from his vantage point, no threat to the left and no need to occupy that ground. And on the other end, on the right, there were a, no a number of potential contenders. And I think he decided that the best to secure his re-election was to make sure that no one could emerge on the right. And I think that's why he's sort of being trapped into becoming no longer a centrist, neither left nor right candidate, but increasingly, and I think at this point, irreversibly, a right-wing candidate. It is that irony that he's the centrist who destroyed the centre. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that he's both the centrist who destroyed the centre, but it's also in part because the centre was destroyed that he could emerge in the first place. And I think if you, th if you look at it say 2013, 14, actually a bit, maybe a bit later than that, 15, 16, it was the centre-right's presidential election to lose. If you would have said who was going to win the French presidential election in 2017 at that point, you would have said a, the candidate of the centre-right. That isn't what happened. In part, it's not what happened because of Filon's collapse. Meanwhile, we've got a socialist president in, in Hollande who had dismal approval ratings and the French socialist parties had been trapped in many of the same difficulties that other centre-left parties in, in Europe have, have found themselves in. So Macron, in a way, sort of skillfully, he takes himself out of the socialist party and it, he, he's kind of, in some sense, I think he's already running as a centre-right candidate because that's the space that's going to win that election. But at the same time, because of the way that he does it outside the existing parties, he destroys the space both for the centre-right and for the Socialist Party to have any chance of recovery, at least in the short to medium term. But he's left, as you said earlier, then essentially creating this very personal political movement that ends up in the French legislature. In one sense, it makes it incredibly easy for him to govern. But actually, he's destroyed the whole political space in which French politics has hitherto worked its compromises out. And I think it then it turns back on him from the ground up. He didn't leave any space for democratic political competition. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So when you look ahead, he doesn't see a threat from the left, and presumably there isn't going to be a threat from the left in the short term anyway. But on the right, 
it could be a revived centre-right or it could be Le Pen or some equivalent further to the right. And because of the French presidential system, it really matters who, who gets into the runoff. So in those, those two scenarios just map it out for us. So if he, if he runs against Le Pen or an equivalent again, that's one thing. If he runs against a Filon equivalent, that's something else. Yeah, so I, I think at this point, his hope and his best hope for re-election is to be in the runoff against, against Le Pen. And to some extent, he's now navigating politics in order to ensure that outcome. Uh, it's quite a depressing thought. It's, it's, it's quite depressing. It's a bit cynical. But at this point, it's probably what he needs to do. And so the question is, is can he do that? I think there is a risk that a right-wing figure can emerge. The right has been historically divided, which actually doesn't help the emergence of that figure. Basically, you can break down the right into sort of, you know, three camps. One is a camp that is still fairly loyal to Sarkozy and under his influence. Another camp that is fairly loyal to Alain Juppé. And that camp has been pretty much brought into the government at the moment. The current prime minister is sort of a the heir of, 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 of Juppé. And then you have a third portion, which is more floating and which is sometimes flirting with the far right. And so I think what Macron fears the most is that you know there would be a sort of Juppé-Sarkozy figure emerging. We don't have that at the moment, but we could have one. Somebody like uh, Xavier Bertrand, could be who is uh, heading a region of the north, could be running and could get the support from both the Juppé clan and, and the Sarkozy clan. The current prime minister, Edouard Philippe, could also step down and at some point become, become a contender. So these are p- possible scenarios. I think the central scenario at the moment is that these people don't, in part because Macron is fairly agile and, and good enough to keep them inside the tent. And if that's the scenario, then I think he's set for a runoff between him and, and, and Le Pen. The big question to which I would have had a very easy answer a few months ago, which was, you know, by what margin Macron wins against Le Pen in 2022 has become, I think, a tricky answer. Six months ago, so when the results of the European elections came out, what was formidable in the results was to see that basically every left-leaning Macron voter was swapped by a former Fillon voter. And it's quite impressive to be able to do that so quickly, so in two years, and to to do that so completely. So, you know, there was basically no loss of voter, almost, you know. In, so in, the in, character of the people who voted for him had completely changed. The number looked the same. Yes. And people have to understand that what happened is every left voter he lost, he replaced with a, a right voter. Yeah. Which yeah. is remarkable, as you say. Yeah. This was very impressive. And that, to me, so you know, six months ago, I concluded that that you know, paved the way for a victory in 2022 and a fairly easy one. I think things are getting more complicated because that victory still relies on these left-wing voters voting for you in the second round because they don't want to vote for Le Pen. And I think the danger in the hatred that is developing against this government and against him, some of it rational, some of it irrational, is that you see a growing number of left-wing voters saying, I'm actually not voting in the second round for Macron, even against Le Pen. 
not voting at all or might actually vote for them? Rather not voting at all. So sitting it out. Yeah. So I think the the abstention number could be very large. It was already quite large last time. It was very large last time, but he's still, you know, my recollection is that he he won 63, you know, 63. I I think now if we were to do a poll taking into account the participation rate, it would be a, a much closer raise, you know, probably in the 52-53 rather than 62-63. So, and that creates a, a very fundamental risk because if he's perceived by, let's call it the establishment, for lack of a better word, uh, not as the best candidate to win against Le Pen in the second round, then he's no longer the best candidate in the first round. And that, so that redistributes and reshuffles the cards quite, quite a lot. So uh, I think what has happened over the last six to nine months is pretty important in, in the sense that the certainty of a victory in the second round has taken a hit. And that, you know, could be quite meaningful over the next two years. I think one of the other interesting things is, is we've talked on this podcast quite a few times about these elections getting framed as order versus chaos. And if you go back to 2017, that Macron was really very effective in presenting himself as the reassertion of order against the chaos of populism. That might have been an oversimplification of what was going on, but that frame worked really rather well for him. I think that the risk for him this time is is that he looks like the source of chaos because of partly what's been going on in the streets with protests, but also he's become in some sense a symbol of the fact that French politics doesn't work or French democratic politics doesn't work. And he's risked opening the flank, indeed, to Le Pen of her being able to present herself this time as the source of order. Now, again, that's disingenuous in the way in which he's presenting himself as the source of order was last time. But I think he's conceded quite a lot of ground on the order front to his right. Yeah. He he didn't exactly use these terms. The the terms that he used was to present himself as the, the new world versus the old world. And I think he had managed to convince the French public in 2017 and, and, and after that he embodied a new way of politics and he embodied the, the new world. A bit like Renzi had done in Italy a couple of years uh, prior. And that one didn't end well. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I was about to say, so Renzi proved to be rather the last man of the old world rather than the first man of the new world. And there's a real risk that Macron could be our Renzi in that sense, that Macron could be the last man who tried to preserve the establishment and the way, you know, French politics operated by actually killing the existing parties, but still trying to, you know, make the institutions that were built around them survive. And it might be that we get to an election where people are are ready to take um, a leap or not committed enough to preserving the system to, to actually vote for it. His deep unpopularity, it's growing, presumably. I mean, where are we compared to six months ago, say, just in the rejection of Macron as a figure and as a symbol of the kind of change he represented a couple of years before that? Is there any end in sight to his growing unpopularity? I know he's higher now than he was at some points in opinion polling, but there's this feeling that the opposition is building in some sense. Is that right? I don't know if the opposition is building because, as we discussed, I, I don't think there is a real political opposition to speak of that is organizing so it's leaderless itself around, around a figure. I think his support is is waning, even though you don't see it in the polls. I think the the pension reform was very important also because something that Macron had built his career and his government and his power on, which was competence, seriousness, effectiveness, 
disappeared with this reform. And, you know, we won't go on, on the details of the pension reform here. That's not the point. But the thing that, that was really striking is the, the complete chaos with which this reform was brought to the table with the prime minister and the president saying different things, the prime minister trying to introduce you know, savings and the pension reforms when the president you know, had not committed to that during the campaign. There was like a number of back and forth that created complete confusion, both with the public, with the unions. And so to some extent, this contestation is, is, is to a large extent man-made. There would have been opposition to the reform in any case, but I think a large portion of it has been entirely created by internal disorganization. So I think this has caused a hit for Macron because this uh, appearance of competence has been challenged with, with, with this reform. I think there is an end in sight, though, to the slide, and because I think once this reform is done, it's... And it, it will it, pass in so, some form. So, this is, so the, the big debate now is how will it pass? And it's important because there are echoes of the past in this. At this point, the opposition has flooded the parliament with more than 40,000 amendments, which will make it extremely hard to process and extremely hard to pass. So the government will soon be put against the wall and can use a legal instrument, which is called Article 49.3 of the Constitution, which basically allows the government to pass the law and put the confidence of the government on the balance. So basically, the only way to avoid passing the law is to vote down the government. So we used to have that, yeah. and then we <laughs> abolished it. But anyway, that's a separate question. We didn't call it Article 49.3 because we don't have those. But, but it's, it's very interesting because, so this Article 49.3 was used by Hollande, and it was used once on Macron's law. So Macron had this economic reform law in 2015, and Macron really didn't want, and I was in his team then, really didn't want to use 49.3. You know. Does it smack of desperation? Yes, and also because at the time, as a junior minister who was trying to make an impression, he was actually the minister who spent the most time in the parliament, and he was trying to convince members of parliament one by one. And he was very successful at doing that. And so is measure of success to some extent was his ability to actually convince parliamentarians and to pass the law. And he actually opposed and clashed with the prime minister at the time, Valls, who wanted to use uh, 49.3 as an act of authority and also to reassert his power over his economy minister at the time. So it would be very ironic four years later that the same minister who opposed 49.3 as president would end up using it. But the more time passes, the more it's difficult to see a scenario without this. So I think either Macron accepts that this drags on for another six months, which I think is very difficult to accept politically, or he withdraws the bill, which I think is also very difficult politically, or he makes an act of authority with 49.3, which is a double-edged word. You know, I think it will rest his case, but at the same time, you know, it might increase the tension. But I think once that law is passed, in whichever way it, it is passed, I think then we enter a moment for the next two years where there won't be very ambitious reforms put on the table or not very controversial ones. So there is a constitutional reform that is planned, but which is merely designed to reduce the number of seats in, in the parliament. And it's not going to be, I think, the object of, you know, very, of a lot of street opposition. It might be the object of a lot of internal fights, but not street opposition. So I think then we enter a period of two years where I think contestation, you know, sort of slows down and Macron has the time to sort of, you know, stabilize his popularity and prepare it to, to run. 
And does he use that time then to do the other Macron thing, which is to offer not just European, but a kind of vision of Western or global leadership? He, he's also known from the outside as someone who speaks in pretty grand geopolitical terms. He's trying to create some new relationship with Putin and Russia. There was his attempt to create a relationship with Trump. There's the question of the relationship with China. How does that play inside France? When people see their president offering a vision for the whole world, do people warm to that? Yeah, so I I really agree. So I think once this domestic agenda has passed, I think the focus goes back to Europe. And sort of for the reasons we have exposed, I think the agenda in Europe will be will be limited, but we'll, we'll get back to it. And so I think the stage will be will be global. I think he will seize that moment to be ever more present with a new or maybe the same American president. I think he will continue to try and, and shape the agenda in Europe in the peculiar way that he has done, so you know, making grand speeches, but not really focusing enough on how to deliver on, on, on these speeches. And take advantage of Brexit to play the role as the leading EU-based military power? Yeah, to some extent, he has started to do that. So you mentioned Munich earlier, where I think he was very pressing in this way. And I think we'll continue to make the case that Europe needs to build its own defense outside of NATO, not in competition with NATO, but as something that needs to work in complement to NATO. He has made a quite important nuclear speech the week before Munich, where he offered to his European partners a strategic dialogue on the question of nuclear deterrence, but not only. So I think that will continue to, to be at the heart of his agenda. I'm not sure it's going to be extraordinarily successful, in part because I think it is misunderstood, and in part, I think, because he's not prepared to go far enough. So I think it's partly misunderstood because in his overture to Russia or in what he has said about NATO being brain dead, which was probably a choice of word that was a bit too strong, but which I think reflected quite well the French view that, you know, there are growing doubts about what can NATO achieve in, in Europe. And in part because I think he's not going far enough. So I think the, the nuclear speech was very interesting in that sense. So these speeches are highly codified. He basically said something akin to Europe would be part of French's vital interest. And so what is considered vital is something that could be defended with nuclear force. So that was quite a bold move. There is a Franco-British treaty that actually says in its preamble that both British and, and French interests are mutually vital, which means that there cannot be an attack on the UK without French's vital interests being threatened. So that degree of cooperation between France and the UK is very strong for nuclear matters. But I think Macron's hope would be to extend that to the rest of the EU. It's difficult to do with countries that reject the principle of nuclear deterrence. And uh, it's very difficult to do in countries where that topic is taboo, and that's Germany. So I think there's a very big sort of agenda for military security and defense issues, which could occupy a big part of his, of the second part of his presidency. But it's not clear to me at this stage whether it, it can be successful, in part because despite the overture and the of profoundly European nature of, of his push in that sense, there is also something a bit French in it, which is that he has never offered concerted nuclear deterrence. And that makes a huge difference. So basically, he's offering to put Germany and the rest of Europe under the French nuclear umbrella, but under French control. And what I think Europe and maybe Germany could be more open to would be a concerted nuclear deterrence. That would 
require a huge leap in Germany. So accepting to co-own the red button, which, you know, at the moment, no German politician has voiced support for. Especially if the Greens are going to be part of the next Especially government. Especially if the Greens are going to be part of the next government. But that, I think, is a, co- is a conversation that should take place in Germany. And that France, so I think Macron has not gone far enough to provoke it. The last one who did was Juppé, and that was in 97, if my memory served me well. And Juppé was the first to mention this word, concerted uh, nuclear deterrence. And at the time, the Germans said, we don't want to hear about that. So maybe there's another attempt to be made, but we're probably not exactly there yet. I think that the the problem for Macron in trying to sort of make the last years of his presidency about geopolitics is that there just aren't enough people, particularly within the European Union, who share his geopolitical outlook. So they might think that there are reasons to worry about what's happening in the United States with the NATO commitment. But if you look at that from Germany, your view is is that we try to nail the Americans down to the NATO commitment. Now, that may be a full-on exercise too, because there are structural reasons as to why any American president, not just Trump, might be sceptical towards NATO, at least in the medium to long term. But that is still an existential question for the Germans. They, or Most German politicians are not going to move on there. NATO is absolutely necessary position. Neither are those states sitting between Germany and Russia, like Poland in particular, going to move on on this question, which means that Germany and Poland are not going to view Russia in the same way in which Macron views Russia in terms of wanting a reset. Neither is Germany going to view North Africa and Middle East the way in which Macron views it, because they're not in the same position militarily in either the Middle East or um, North Africa as the French. And the Germans don't think the same way about China as Macron does. The German economic relationship um, with China is rather different than the French. And I, I think that even actually within some within the French sort of foreign policy establishment don't really share Macron's analysis, let alone that the, the Merkel would sign up to this, that the reason why Russia has moved closer to China is, is because of European policy towards Russia, which is the position that Macron's been articulating in, in recent weeks. And so he seems to think that it, if the European Union repaired its relationship with Russia, at least under certain conditions, that that would pull Russia away from China. But I think that the sceptics about that are right, that the the logic for China-Russia relationship runs a lot deeper than anything that the European Union's done in terms of sanctions towards Russia over Ukraine. It's partly got an energy logic to it, aside from anything else. So it isn't just, I think, that, that there is insufficient support for the weak policy prescriptions that Macron has, because he's in some sense more like a think tanker, I think I saw that said in, in recent weeks in describing it, uh, his position than a than a politician. It's also that actually his basic geopolitical analysis is not sufficiently widely shared. That makes me think we need to have another conversation about what's going on in Germany, and we'll do that soon, but we're not going to do it today. Can we finally touch on a couple of things that again, seen from outside France, look fascinating, but it's very hard to know how to read them. So there are tr- two affairs. Um, They're not quite Dreyfus, but they have a kind of cachet that goes beyond the immediate moment. Griveaux, the Macronist candidate for the mayoralty of Paris, was forced to step down because a video was released, a sex tape, let's call it. And it raises this classic French question about privacy. And for a non-French audience, what's so astonishing is the entire French political class, rather than using it as an opportunity to dump on him, basically, rallied round him. So this is an outrage. This is a threat to the Republic. If we can't keep our sex tapes private, what's going to happen? 
And then there's the Mila affair, the, the schoolgirl who said derogatory things about Islam, uh, was then subject to a huge level of threat and had to go under protection, couldn't go to school, and then went on TV and bravely, I thought, stood her ground to a certain extent and claimed her right to say and believe these things in the French Republic and to continue to go to school. And both of these affairs have really thrown a light on the question, of, is the French political class nervous that the way they thought the world was is really shifting? And those traditional defenses, whether it's laicite or privacy, it's much more complicated now. There's a question about their basic sense of confidence of who they are. Can they treat this as though this was a classic set of disputes within French political history? Or are we now in 2020 and the ground is shifting under them? These are big questions, but you can yeah. pick either. You don't have to talk about both. Yeah. So uh, it was interesting because when the, when the sex tape scandal emerged, a number of my non-French friends said, well, I, I don't understand. You know, I, I thought in France this would actually be good for the candidate. Um, I, I think this is a bit of a myth of how, how but it, it's true that you know the, the entire political system rallied around around Griveaux and defended his right to privacy. And it cuts across conspiracy theories and Russian interference and all that. We should say that too. It's not a straightforward yeah. privacy issue. It's also yeah, yeah. No, whether are, you believe the republic's are, under threat from yeah, there there are several Putin layer, there are several yeah. layers of this. You know, the fact that the video was leaked by a, a Russian uh, activist who happens to be also an anti-Putin activist. And the fact that the campaign, Macron's campaign in 2017, had been hacked into by, by what appears to be a Russian activist. You know, so all of this, you know, uh, forms the, the background of, of, of this. On this issue, I don't think there is a big departure, in fact, from the French tradition. In fact, you know, Everybody stood to the line, you know, nobody should be forced to step down for these things. And, and including Le Pen, I noticed, yeah. which again, for a non-French person, I'd have thought Le Pen would take advantage of it. No, she's in that sense establishment. Yeah. And to some extent, you even had people who regretted that, uh, that and people who would be normally Grivo's political opponents who regretted that he stepped down, saying, you know, by stepping down when you're in a position of power for the kind of abuse and, and the kind of harassment that he suffered, you're in fact weakening those who are suffering from revenge porn and, and harassment online and, and so on. So he was, he was really supported by a wide range of the, of the population. The Mila case is, is interesting, but I think different and reveals, I think, some, some changes. There were some polls that were conducted, and I think these polls are very weak, but that suggested that actually while the majority of people defended her, a majority of people thought that it was inappropriate to pronounce such derogatory terms against the religion and against Islam in particular. And actually that percentage increased for younger people. And that's in contrast with the law, because our legal system actually offers full protection for blasphematory and, and derogatory language against any religion. And I think that indicates something about an ongoing identity crisis in France around the place of Islam and around, around migration, something we have not discussed, but which is actually a new push by Macron at the moment, making you know a number of proposals against what he called Islamic separatism, which was previously called communitarism. And that's very interesting because I think Macron has tried for the past two years to avoid venturing into that debate. 
he had held the line for a while that our legal framework and the infamous laicite law of 1905 was offering perfect clarity and protection and there was no need to, to go into that debate. And he was actually, actually forced and dragged into this. So there's you know, a discussion as to whether he's forced and dragged into this or whether he deliberately decides to go there because this is also a polarizing topic that could help the repositioning that we discussed and the framing of him versus versus Le Pen that we discussed. But that's that's a change that, that's quite important. And the fact that basically we have an unresolved identity crisis in France, that our relationship to Islam hasn't been pacified. And that's a profoundly problematic issue that the French political system as a whole hasn't been able to, to come to terms with. And that cuts across the left and the right. So left-wing parties are extremely divided on this issue, as well as right-wing parties. Right-wing parties because there is under it the Catholic vote. And so, you know, any attacks against a religion, you know, would actually antagonize this this right-wing Catholic vote. But it's also a very uh, divisive issue on the left, where, you know, people who are you know, emotionally attached to the republic and its laicity tend to reinvent and reinterpret its meaning to one that is hostile to all religions and in particular to, to Islam. And that's a topic that I thought for a long time Macron would be able to pacify, and he, and he has not managed to. And it leaves, I think, the whole country very exposed to, to this. To some extent, it's a topic that's also bigger than, than France. I think it's an identity crisis that cuts through Europe. And it's sadly not a topic that I think will be best dealt with in, in France for many reasons. The weight and the historical weight of, of our colonies and for this very peculiar French relationship to religion. And so to some extent, and that maybe is a segue to your next podcast on Germany, I'm hopeful that this sort of identity crisis that Europe is facing and its relationship with Islam could be best dealt with in Germany. I think they're doing incredible work in welcoming a large influx of migrants from Syria, sort of work that I get to witness. Not I spend more time in, in Berlin, but I have never seen in France. And I think they're not brought down by the weight of history and, and, and colonization, which I think can, can, can help. Our next podcast won't be about Germany, but I promise we will get to that soon. We're putting out an extra episode this weekend. It's a live recording of an interview I did with Michael Ignatieff, the former Canadian liberal politician and currently the head of the Central European University, which has just been driven out of Budapest. We're going to be talking about the future of democracy. Next week, it'll be Helen and me. And we're going to be talking about what's been going on in British politics, because while we've been talking about other countries, we haven't been standing still either. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.